All right. Well, good morning. Let's uh, let's open in prayer, do a very brief review and, and get into it because there's no shortage of uh, content to cover. And uh, I don't want to zoom through uh, these things because that would be to undercut the point of it. But nevertheless, I want to get moving here. So let's uh, let's open in a word of prayer. God, as we consider these things, uh, we pray that we would continue to do so with a charitable spirit, assuming the best. Lord, give us ears to listen well to the text of Scripture, uh, to make distinctions where we need to make distinctions, and that we would be mastered by a pursuit of the truth and not conformity to one tradition uh, or the other, uh, but that we would look at the text and uh, let the cards fall where they may as we interpret it responsibly. So be with us this morning as we continue to look at who are the proper subjects of baptism. We ask you we ask you to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you were not here last time, I said that what we are going to do, and I'm doing this so I can kind of have it on the books, so to speak, uh, so I can do it once and then never do it again, hopefully, and I can always be pointing people back, is a kind of a comprehensive teasing out of Reformed, paedo-baptistic understanding of baptism, and then an analysis and cr critique of all of it, all of it. And so last time I laid out the position for uh, infant baptism, and, I, and I've had a couple of arguments, although I, I said I wanted to try to present the very strongest case, because that's the only way to do good theology, is to just present the strongest case for the position that you disagree with. You can't present, present a lame little case and then knock it over like a straw man, um, and so what I want to do is I wanted to bolster the, the case that I made last time with, with two extra points, and then we're going to move on. Uh, I I'm, had a pretty bad oversight, in my opinion, in terms of leaving out this one argument. Oh, by the way, this is kind of, let me get down to where we're at here. We looked at all of these. Yes, but we did not look at the argument from let the children come to me. And uh, so I do want to uh, do want to briefly go over this one, and uh, I will read it. We're going to get some readers later because we're going to look at the Baptistic text. But let me just tell you. Uh, let me just read this to you. This comes in the context of uh, within. Well, excuse me. It comes in Mark uh, chapter ten. And uh, if you recall, people are bringing children to the disciples. They get upset. Uh, they're annoyed. Listen to what. Uh, the passage says, And they were bringing children to him, that is Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So you might say, well, where did, where did baptism show up there in that particular passage? Uh, and here's uh, 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 Murray probably gives, John Murray, that is, probably gives the best. Oh, did I not have this? Please, please say I have that on there. Yes. All right. Read this quote with me from John Murray, commenting on this passage. If little children belong to the kingdom of God, if they belong to Christ, if they are to be received into the fellowship of believers, if they are to be reckoned, as possessing the qualities and rights that constitute members of the kingdom of God and of the church, is there any reason 
why they should not receive the sign of that membership, that is to say, baptism. Okay? So, uh, and that is essentially the argument. There's, there, that's, that's basically the whole argument right there. Okay? Jesus says, let the children come to me. Obviously, children belong to the kingdom. They should receive the sign of the kingdom. That's baptism. Okay? Pretty, pretty substantial argument that shows up over and over and over. We mentioned at the very conclusion that it's critical for our Pado-Baptist friends and brothers and sisters that baptism replaces circumcision. Baptism accomplishes an identical role to circumcision just in the New Covenant. So I didn't give any texts for that, though, which, again, I believe I would be short... Um, I would be shorting them if I did not do so. And so let me just first read Romans 4, 11 and 12. Romans 4, 11 and 12, we're talking about Abraham being justified by faith. And then it said, he, Abraham, in verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And so Pado baptists are going to argue that, do I have that here? Pado baptists are going to, oh, don't read that yet. Pado baptists are going to argue that this passage indicates uh, circum, uh, excuse me, indicates that it, that baptism functions identically to circumcision, because baptism symbolizes justification by faith. That's essentially the argument. The argument is that no one after Abraham, uh, uh, who was given the sign as an infant, actually had faith. It was administered to them as a child, but yet it was a seal of a righteousness. It, it was a seal of a righteousness of faith. And yet everyone else besides Abraham that it had given to in, the, in, in accordance with how the text of Scripture lays it out and the story unfolds, none of them uh, had faith when they received the sign. So the idea is it symbolizes justification by faith and is something that one is to grow up into, so to speak. That's one argument. Uh, let, let me read uh, one by uh, a quote here by uh, Ross. Let's see if this is in here. And I have so many quotes. Let's see. Let's, let's just turn to Colossians 2 first, and I'll read these for you. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, uh, 11 and 12. We actually read this. We went over this passage already. But you're, I think you're going to see pretty clearly how is understood to imply that baptism is identical to circumcision and or replaces circumcision. It says, in him, that is to say in Christ, in verse 11, in him also you are circumcised. Okay, you are circumcised. With a circumcision made without hands. But what kind though? By putting off the body of flesh, the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Robertson says this, 
the net result of Paul's statement is to bind together in closest possible fashion the two rites of circumcision and baptism in the fullest possible sense. In the fullest possible sense, baptism under the new covenant accomplishes all that was represented in circumcision under the old. Okay? That is the argument. Backing up to Romans 4.12, I thought I had these quotes for you. I'm just going to read them because it helps you understand the Romans 4.11 and 12 argument based off Abraham's circumcision. Ross says this, If we understand Abraham's circumcision to certify that he had faith or that God had given him righteousness, then we are at a loss to explain what Ishmael's circumcision meant or Esau's, or Saul's, or any other candidate Jew who was an unbeliever and cut off from the blessings of God's covenant. He's saying, if you look back at that passage and say, what happens is Abraham had faith, and then God credited him with righteousness, you're going to be at a loss to, and then, and then he received the accompanying sign, circumcision, you're going to be at a loss to explain how circumcision applies to any of his descendants who received it before they had faith. Brian Chappell, who has a very helpful book on preaching, by the way, uh, Presbyterian, says the validity of a seal is not dependent upon the time that the conditions of the covenant accompanying it are met. Like the seal of a document, the seal of circumcision could be applied long before recipients of promised and signified blessings met the conditions of the covenant. The seal was simply the visible pledge of God that when the conditions of his covenant were met, the blessings he promised would apply. Okay? And so that's the understanding of circumcision. If baptism replaces circumcision, there's no problem with administering baptism to someone who doesn't have any conscious faith. That is the argument. Okay? So I am now concluding, I believe I'm concluding, I'm concluding my presentation of the Reformed paedo-baptistic understanding of baptism often that comes out of so-called covenant theology and would could generally be held to by people in the, for example, the OPC, the PCA, and the Reformed, the, the well, the conservatives, at least, most of probably the Anglicans. I have an Anglican friend who would affirm all this as well. Okay, so what is the alternative? There are really kind of two alternatives. No, there are two alternatives. The, if you remember our biblical frameworks class, we worked through a couple of different frameworks that would be non-Pado-Baptistic covenant theology. This is the most general one, okay? So we're just going to go with this. The other ones fit into this scheme, okay? Um, so you'll remember that, uh, that, that in the co scheme of covenant theology, you have that kind of covenant of works uh, or in this version, covenant of life, covenant of creation, where Adam is tasked with ruling and subduing and obeying, and he doesn't do that. And so then in Genesis 3.15, in covenant theology, you have the covenant of grace. And remember, the covenant of grace is the supra-covenant that includes everything from Genesis 3.15 down to <clears throat> Revelation 22. And all of the biblical covenants are subsumed within this overarching covenant, which is why they're all the same in substance, but only differ in administration, okay? But notice here, there's not a covenant of grace. The Baptist says, no, 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 the motif that encapsulates redemptive history is not one supra-covenant, it's a promise. It is a promise that is made, that there is a seed that's going to come from the woman that's going to crush the serpent. 
And it is that promise that gets teased out in various covenants that are different as redemptive history progresses. Noahic, the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic, Davidic, the new covenant, which has the kind of already not yet dynamic to it there. As you can see, because the covenants are not all under one supra covenant, instead they tease out a, a promise, an overarching promise, there is obviously going to be more room for development within the covenants, and there's more room for uh, differences between the covenants as things advance. So, given this overarching framework, how then do we make a case for believers-only baptism? Remember last time we did say our Presbyterian and our Presbyterian friends do practice believers' baptism, right? They believe if you are a pagan man who repents and believes the gospel, you should be baptized as a believer. It's just they don't believe in believers-only baptism. Key point. So let's talk about a couple of texts here. I want to spend some time here. Uh, who can? Uh, let's get some readers here. Oh, yes, this is, what on earth, where, where is this coming from? That's such a great quote, but it's not the one I meant to pull up. Hold on, hold on, hold on one second here, hold on one second. Oh, hold on a second, did I skip, what's going on here? Did I skip a slide, y'all? What happened there? What's going on? All right, hold on one second. It may be that... Uh... Oh, wow. Okay. Well, so I don't know why. So, no, I do know why. I obviously messed something up, and I do apologize for that. I really do apologize for that. And yet, I don't think it's going to be a big deal at this point because we're just going to be looking at some texts. We're just going to be reading some texts, okay? And instead of the text being up there, uh, I am going to... So these, 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 what you just saw were all the arguments pushing back. Like it, it went into the next section here without establishing this part. I, I don't, again, know why, and I do apologize uh, I must have not been cut and paste correctly. All right, but let's have a couple readers here. First, uh, Jeremiah 31, thir uh, 31 through 34. Who could read that for us? Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Yeah, Chris. Jeremiah 32, 37 through 41. Hunter. John 1, 11 through 13. Who could read that? What's your name, my good man? Um, one more time. St. Michael. Great. Uh, John 1, 11 through 13. And then uh, let's have someone, this is going to be a two-texter. Romans 9, 2 through 4, combined with Romans 8, 15 through 17. Who has the courage to do the double text? Okay, there you go. Glenn has the courage to do the double text. Uh, Romans 9, 2 through 4 with Romans 8, 15 through 17. And then finally, Galatians 3, 29. Asher Dasher, my good man. Okay. All right, who's my Jeremiah 31 man? Yes, go ahead with a nice loud voice and a little bit of velocity. 
Okay, excellent. I would say if there is one staple foundational passage that Baptists hold up to describe their understanding of the new covenant as not mixed, not a combination of covenant keepers and covenant breakers, like uh, the model of covenant theology under that covenant of grace, it starts, it doesn't end with, but it starts with Jeremiah 31. And when we look at Presbyterian responses to this, there is a, it feels like fumbling. There are a lot of attempts to try to say what is going on here. So why is this such a meaningful passage? Remember, the days are coming. There's going to be a new covenant. This is the new covenant that gets teased out and quoted in um, Hebrews chapter 8, the new covenant that we inhabit with the house of Israel and house of Judah. And here's a thing, verse 32. It is set apart from other covenants. It will not be like the covenant I made with your fathers, with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. This is the nature of the covenant. I'm going to put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. And no one will have to teach his neighbor because everyone will know the Lord from the least to the greatest and everyone will have their sins forgiven. That's the idea. I will forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sin no more. I'm going to make a new covenant. It will not be like these. How will it be not like these? Will there be some tiny superficial sign differences? No, no, no. It will not be like this because in the new covenant that's coming, the, everyone in the covenant will have the forgiveness of sins, the law written on their heart, and they will be a covenant keeper and not a covenant breaker. As it turns out, that is exactly what we would be expecting with a biblical theology of the prophets expecting a remnant. If you were around for our prophet series, we talked about two characters in the book of the 12. Israel is rebel and Israel is remnant. And the remnant is the purified, faithful group that emerges and is preserved from Israel as rebel. This larger group and is the remnant who will experience the promised blessings. That sounds a lot like everyone who is faithful. Okay, Jeremiah 31. It is not like the covenant. It's not, it's not like something that has come before it. Not like the covenants before it, uh, because everyone in this covenant, unlike the other ones, will know God, have the law written on their heart, have their sins forgiven, be a covenant keeper. Okay? Jeremiah 32, 37 through 41. Behold, I Mm. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will favor 
Excellent. A couple of things to point out here. You notice some similarities with the Jeremiah 31 passage. Okay, you notice that they, in this covenant, uh, that that uh, it will be an everlasting covenant and that I will not turn away from doing good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. In this covenant right here, people don't turn away from God in it. That's what it says. Let me make one really crucial point too that goes overlooked by a lot of Baptists reading this passage as a proof text. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Great, they get that. And for their own good and the good of their children after them. There's a tendency to, to push back so hard against the Presbyterian understanding, the mixed covenantal understanding, that children don't have, it's like, well, what's the benefit of being a child on the Baptist to being, you know, born to believing parents or something like that. On the Baptist understanding, are children just, you know, vipers and diapers? I mean, what's going on here? Are they, are they, are you not saying they're a covenant child? Well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly, and I'm not saying they're a covenant child. However, there is tremendous amount of good to be born into a Christian home. It is a, a tremendous amount of good to hear the one way and one heart of the gospel to be taught by them, and that is for the good of the children. Uh, of believers, okay? So it doesn't mean that there is a covenantal relationship between um, God and those believers, but the, the covenantal relationship that does exist between God and those in the covenant who will have pure hearts and the law written on their hearts stands to be a tremendous good uh, to their children. So there is certainly import, application and import for children as well. And maybe just to put it really, really basically, it's a tremendous blessing to grow up in a Christian home. Okay, and that children are, as we're going to get to when I critique the Presbyterian understanding of let the children come to me, that children are little walking sign acts uh, of, uh, of the kingdom of God, of the nature with which someone should enter the kingdom. Okay, not a physical child, as I will argue, is an absolutely unworkable interpretation of that passage, but that children have a meaningful role to play as we look at them and say, wow, my faith needs to be as such, okay? All right, uh, next passage, John 1, 11 through 13, as we jump into the New Testament here. Yes, love it. Thank you. So I want, you, I want you to listen to this. He came to his own. Who is his own, by the way? Huh? Israel. Israel. That's right. So he came to his own, and they received him, right? No, they didn't. He says, it says he came to his own physical flesh and blood people, and they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, in this context, is everyone else who wasn't the people he came to, wasn't Israel particularly. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children. Okay, wait, now now we're in children language. Here we're in children. Oh, no, we, we always, always want to rub our hands together when we hear children in this context of this baptismal debate. We just heard about children, Jeremiah 32. Okay, children. So how do I become a child of God? Well, I'm, what I am is I am born into the covenant from believing. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children who were born. See, I told you, it's born, you're born. Oh, wait, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it is. it takes, what does it mean to be a child of God? It means not to be born physically, but it is this rebirth. It is to be born again, and we talked about this, that, that I've mentioned this many times now, that, that, that Baptists baptize spiritual infants, spiritual newborns who are born again from above by the Spirit as a fulfillment of this very typology. How do I become a child of God? I'm born of God. I'm not, it doesn't say anything about who my parents are right here. It doesn't say anything about it. And in fact, in this particular context, it's saying that the people, it's not exclusive. Obviously, the disciples embraced Jesus and they were Jewish. But the context here is that the people uh, who were becoming children of God were not born of the covenant people of God. He came to his own. His own people rejected him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children. Okay? Totally divorcing it from, the, from ethnic and genealogical descent at this point in terms of what it means to be a child of God. Okay, Glenn with the task of Romans 9, 2, and 4. And re read that and then pause real quick and then Romans 8, 15 through 17. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenant and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Okay. So just very briefly, Paul identifies with them ethnically for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. So now we have a theology of adoption. And who do you adopt? You adopt children, right? They're they're, 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 to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and all the rest. So, but I wanted to focus on that language of adoption. The physical Israelites, to them belong the adoption of God. Okay, now, Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading you to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And as children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Excellent. So as one, as one theologian has put it, the adopted children of Romans 9 are not the adopted children necessarily of Romans 8. How does adoption happen? Well, you have to be a Jew so that, 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 you're, that, that all these things belong to you. Well, apparently adoption that makes you a child happens through those who cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are in fact children and therefore heirs. We are heirs. We are heirs to the promises. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order we may also be glorified with him. So again, there's another way to claim the adoption of God. It's a fulfilled way. A Jew, be Paul, says, theirs belongs the adoption. Fair. 
there's some sense, there's some sense in which that's true. However, because of what Jesus has done and because fulfillment has happened and because redemptive history has progressed, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, nevertheless, now what it looks like to be adopted and to be child of God is Roman is the Romans 8 picture. So adoption, adoption as a child, what it means to be an adopted child changes. It goes from being an Israelite and Jewish to being someone who is particularly in Christ. And then finally, Galatians 3.29. Who's got that for me? Asher Dasher. If you, how do you become Abraham's offspring? Well, you're born to Jewish parents. Nope, 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 nope. It's not what Paul says. If you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed or offspring and heirs according to the promise. That's a zinger right there, brothers and sisters. If you are in Christ, then you are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. Okay? And so, this is the argument. This is the argument for believers-only baptism based on fulfillment that actually leads to discontinuity, not continuity. That the covenant we already looked at uh, is pure, and that's because there's own, there's the, the way to be born is different now. The way to be adopted is not just physical descent now. The way to be a child is not physical procreation into a particular lineage now. It is to be adopted um, by in conjunction with the Spirit, crying, Abba, Father. It is to be a child of God in, a, in light of repenting and believing. It is to be the seed of Abraham in light of being in Christ. All of these things are moving along in redemptive history and find a fulfillment, and find a fulfillment, okay? That is the first argument for believers-only baptism, that the covenant, and because of how people are born into it, guarantees that those in the covenant are believers, are believers only, and that the covenant does not include believers and unbelievers, Everyone born into the covenant uh, is going to be a believer, and the covenant only includes covenant keepers, no covenant breakers. Everyone has the law written on their heart, and everyone uh, knows God. Any questions about that little family of arguments that I think forms the core of the biblical theological argument for believers' baptism? Any questions about that? Yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you end up in a... Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that explicitly. You do end up in a superficially similar circumstance where you have people who have the covenant sign but don't actually have the fear of the Lord. The difference is who the sign should be administered to. That's the key difference here. Okay, On the Baptist view, if I knew that you were an unbeliever, I would not administer the sign to you. Where if you're a Presbyterian, it doesn't, they don't, it doesn't come into it. I could know that you don't, in the case of an infant, uh, to, be, to be very clear, in the case of an infant at least, they would not administer the sign, even though I'm going to point out that I think it's inconsistent. They would not administer to a side to an unbelieving adult. Uh, but, but yeah, you do end up in a, uh, when it comes out in the wash, you end up superficially in a similar situation. And yet the real crux of the argument is who is the appropriate object of receiving the sign, not who happens to have received it. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, then Grady. Yeah. 
Oh, we are getting ahead of me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're going to talk about the halfway covenant up in New England. It was a, it was a big deal. It was a very big deal. It surrounded the questions that you're asking right there. It had to do with children who were born into the covenant, covenant children, but who didn't profess faith, but they had children and wanted their children to be baptized, but they weren't believers. So they had to squirm a little bit to be consistent with the genealogical principle, but also end up baptizing children of those who weren't believers. So we're going to get, I'm going to get to that, but not quite yet. Yes, Tracy. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah. What is the, what's the Presbyterian response to Jeremiah 31? Yeah. Once I, once I, oh yes, I have with great detail, I will outline the response, but I'm trying to get through the, the argument. I presented the Presbyterian argument. Now I'm trying to present the Baptist argument and then I will go to work on the dismantling, hopefully what I consider very charitably, but also hopefully very forcefully that, that Presbyterian argument, including certainly in Jeremiah 31 passage. Um, okay. Uh, 934. Okay, so the second argument, which regrettably you don't have up here either, I don't think. I'm just going to go through the LDs one more time just to make sure it's not somewhere. Uh, oh, go back. See, that, that one slide was actually right. Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, uh. All right. Sorry. All right. Second argument. Second argument for believers only baptism is an argument from explicit New Testament instances and commands. Now, um, let me just I'm going to point to one explicitly. I have the notes, by the way, this this if you want the extended note sheet for this module, I'm happy to pass it out provided you've not distributed it. I don't have all on this one point. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine. I have nine references of instances and commands. And here's the main point. There is not a single command, and maybe that's why I had the Burkhoff quote. Let's see. There is not a single command or instance that the New Testament contains no direct evidence for the practice of infant baptism in the day of the apostles. There is no command in Scripture, and there is no example in Scripture of, of, uh, of infant baptism. Warfield says this, It is true that there is no express command to baptize infants in the New Testament, no express record of the baptism of infants, and no passages so stringently implying it that we must infer from them, uh, which is not supposed to be formed, from them that infants were baptized. Okay, is there a third one there? All right, we'll get to that one next. So this is the main point of the believers only baptism from an, an argument from explicit New Testament instances and commands. Um, you recall that one of the the, the texts that our Pado Baptist brothers and sisters appeal to in the New Testament to say that God is still covenanting with uh, parents and their children is in Acts two thirty eight and thirty nine, where the people respond and say, "What should we do?" And remember, Peter says, "For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off." Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And I gave a Presbyterian interpretation of that to you to say, hey, listen, it's still for parents and their uh, children. What our Presbyterian brothers and sisters do not necessarily point out is to understand after that, believe and be, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the goodness of your sins, this promises for you and your children, is they don't step down to verse 41, typically, 
to see who after that was baptized. Who was baptized after that? Who was baptized when everyone heard that the promise was for them and their children? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. Acts 2.41. Those who received the word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Matthew 28. I won't even turn there. In terms of making disciples of all nations, baptizing them. We don't see any reference to infant baptism whatsoever. We're going to, uh, in doing double duty here, I'm going to give a little bit of pushback on the 1 Corinthians 16 reference to Stephanus's household. Remember we talked about the household baptism in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. Oh, I'm in the wrong book of the Bible, which is why I can't find. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.16, you remember Paul says, uh, I, did, uh, I did also baptize the households of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anywhere else. So this is a, a, an example of a household baptism that surely contained uh, uh, infants, uh, as the argument goes. And yet, if you go over to the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and you look at verse 15, you see this. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts. They were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the servants these are the service of the saints. Okay? So it doesn't sound like it's merely a household baptism. It sounds like the, the biblical text, it's, it says it looks like a household conversion. Were there children in the house? There could have been, but we baptized a child uh, here just a couple months ago or whenever it was. Baptists are not against uh, baptizing children who have credible professions of faith. We're against infants, infants who don't have any profession of faith whatsoever. Apparently, the household of Stephanus that is held up as an example of a household baptism that certainly contained infants. Again, if we're just going to stick to what the text of Scripture says, it says that their household, Stephanus, they were the first converts in that region. It's a household conversion. Over and over and over again, I'm not going to go through all these, but you look at Acts 2.41, 8.12 and 13, 36 and 38, 18.8. Oh yeah, that's, oh, that's another, I have to read this one. I've got to read 18.8. This is another example that is sometimes given as a household baptism. But I just want you to see what the text itself says. In, in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, we hear about um, uh, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. And um, listen to what it says. It says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. It's an infant instance of a household baptism. An infant's in there. Well, apparently, though, he believed in the Lord together with his entire household. I mean, now, I'm just going to go with that. It seems to me there's a household conversion. And by the way, let me ask you a question. If you were a ruler of a synagogue, do you think you're an older man or a younger man being a ruler of a synagogue? Older, yeah, correct. So what's the chance you think that the ruler of the synagogue has infant children? Very slim, like, like this little. Okay? I'm just throwing that out there. But, it, but even if we didn't know that, it says that his whole household believed. On and on. We'll, we'll, we're gonna, we'll knock a couple more of these down when we go through. But the point is there are no clear examples and no mandate to baptize infants, which, uh, which I think is, uh, is shocking. So here's what our Presbyterian friends want to say. Uh, children had always been part of the covenant. 
That's, that's just what they would have assumed. We, it would take, where is this explicit command to not do something that they have been doing for, for centuries and centuries and centuries? The reason there's not examples of it and the reason there's not instances of it, or at least uh, commands for it, um, the reason there's not a command to do it because everyone just kind of assumed it. it didn't, and you don't need to spend your time talking about things that everyone assumed. Here's a problem with that. It begs the question against the Baptist understanding of Jeremiah 31. If you understand the Jeremiah 31 properly, you're saying, no, actually, that's not what I'm expecting. I'm expecting a covenant in which there are no covenant breakers. I'm expecting a covenant coming where everyone knows the Lord. I'm expecting a covenant where everyone's faithful and critically that in which everyone has the forgiveness of sins because I'm expecting a covenant that is not like the ones before it. In that regard, it's not like. I am, I am expecting a covenant with regards to its constituency as unlike what happened before. Same God, built on the same, under the same promise, but in terms of its constituency, I'm expecting something unlike that. And so, again, it just kind of begs the question against the, against the Baptist position. That's not what I would be expecting when I read Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 32, places in Ezekiel. I'm expecting the new covenant, this next covenant that's coming, where there's everyone has their sins forgiven in it. That's what I'm expecting. Okay, and so uh, the and and so that is the to not see examples of instant infant baptism and examples uh, of um, commands to baptize infants is exactly what I would expect as a Baptist, given my understanding of Jeremiah 31. Okay, let's talk briefly in the last three minutes here. Believers only baptism. An argument from baptism as commitment. Um, and this is from John 4, 1 and 2. Just very quickly here. This is something that just occurred. To, I don't know how I made it through a Baptist seminary, and I never heard this particular argument, but I did, and it is a strong one, and so I want to share it with you here. Um, we learn something very interesting about the disciples here in John chapter 4. And when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that... Uh, that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And there's a great parenthesis right here. Here's what it says. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Only his disciples. So the disciples throughout the ministry of Jesus were baptizing people. Now, what were they baptizing on the basis of? The answer unequivocally is the baptism of John. That's what they were emulating it from. Jesus decided, and again, we talked about where did John's baptism come from. Uh, it certainly probably had some roots in Jewish ceremonial washings. But nevertheless, it does seem to kind of come on the scene something a little bit new. Jesus was fine with taking this baptism. In fact, Jesus himself, if you recall, importantly, goes and gets baptized by John. And then his disciples are baptizing people. Okay, you follow with me so far? Baptism of John, the mode of baptism for people, and John's baptism was explicitly for repentance. Was it was explicitly for repentance, and that is, and the disciples followed suit here. Remember, this is before Jesus has been has died and rose and risen from the dead. Okay, but they are still baptizing people. The disciples are baptizing people into Christ, <coughs> following the template of John, but with different significance because of Christ. Now, so here's like the big argument. Here's the big like reveal or whatever. When you get to Matthew chapter 28, and Jesus looks at the disciples and tells them to make disciples and baptize people, 
What are they thinking of? It's, it's, it's common to believe that he gave that command and then they started baptizing people in the book of Acts. But if we're listening to John 4, they've been baptizing people for years. They've been baptizing for a couple of years. Okay? It's not a new thing for them. The, 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 the act of baptizing people. What would they have thought of when he said baptize? They wouldn't have thought of circumcision. They would have thought of what they had been doing for years, which was a believer's baptism taken after the baptism of John. Listen to what Waymire says as we close here. He says, according to John 4, 1 through 2, there was a direct connection between <coughs> excuse me, the making of disciples and the baptizing of them in the water. The implication is that when one became a disciple of the person with whom this basket, wow, is that, is it? the implication is that one became a disciple of the person with whom his baptism was associated. In this way, baptism served as an outward expression of allegiance given to either John the Baptist or Jesus when an individual became a disciple of one of the others. Infants are simply not capable of this kind of commitment. There is a commitment factor implicit in baptism. It says I'm committed to going or moving towards someone, following someone. Jewett says this, If infants were not baptized by John, which they were not, and no one argues that, with whose baptism Jesus and his disciples presumably were baptized, and after whose example they also baptized others, it is hardly plausible to suppose that at Pentecost the disciples began to do something for which there was no precedent in John's baptism. I'm going to leave that point there. Let it soak in. It's a strong one. Think about it. We'll ask, ask questions. We're a little bit over time. One minute over time now. I need to close in prayer. Last, next time we'll come back, finish up the Baptist argument, and then we'll turn towards critiquing the, our Presbyterian friends and brothers and sisters' arguments. God, we're thankful for the time. We pray that this is not just a rote academic exercise, but it helps us carefully handle the text and be people who responsibly think about these things, that we don't tend towards tribalism or traditionalism or, or, or what just seems best to us, but we want to be, be honest and, and stare at the text and say we want to be shaped by this. Lord, um, we pray for your blessing during our worship hour. We pray that it would be a fragrant offering to you. In Jesus' name, amen.